anything worse. She heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I could just touch his cloak, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus knew that power had come out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my cloak? You see people pressing against you everywhere, said his disciples, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While he was still speaking, some people from the house of the synagogue leader, Jairus, came into the crowd. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any further? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told Jairus, do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone else follow him except for Peter and John and James, along with the father and mother of the little girl. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion and crying and wailing among many people. He went in among them and said, why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who had come with him and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kom, which means... Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began walking around. She was only 12 years old. At this, everyone was completely amazed. Jesus gave strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened and told them to give her some food to eat. This is the word of the Lord. I have always loved this passage, and when I was asked to provide the message today and saw that it was one of the suggested options, I knew it was the one I wanted to choose. I am, of course, an English teacher, and that nature lends my interest to storytelling. And the Gospels, of course, are full of incredible stories that that speak of what Jesus did and how people's lives were changed by him. And these stories in particular are so striking, so much to grab onto. And there are other stories that catch my attention. 
And I was preparing for this kind of thinking, I'd love to pull in a story, uh, another kind of more recent story of belief. Like, what would that story be? And I considered Olympic athletes as they are training and they believe that they can win the gold. And I considered um, amazing constructions, you know, of the pyramids as they, they imagined this um, construction being done and put all their efforts in and believed it would work and it did. Um, but instead, I settled on this story of Cliff Young. And that's not a name you know. Um, but you're going to know about Cliff Young here in a moment. So Cliff Young was 61 years old, so not a, not a young dude, in 1983. He lived in Australia. He was a cowhand, so he worked on a big spread of cattle, definitely didn't own it, didn't rake in the bucks. He was the one out in the pastures tending to the cattle. And he was a strong, independent guy, and just kind of his own person. So one day, he decided to enter a race. There is a traditional foot race, a running race, in Australia um, that takes runners from Sydney to Melbourne. And if you are not a you know, big geography buff, that is 550 miles. So the one who is in this room who came the furthest didn't get anywhere near 550 miles from, from this sanctuary this morning. I mean, that is a long way. And Cliff Young, at age 61, decided to enter that race. So he showed up, and all of his competitors were these young athletes. So they had trained, you know, they had lifted weights, and they had stretched, and they had done test runs, and they had acclimated to the changing weather, and they had their good shoes on, you know, and their, and their fancy running garb, and they had plans, and they had ways that they were going to stay hydrated and strong, and places they were going to rest. It was all incredibly planned out for them. And then there's Cliff Young, 61 years old, cowhand. He looked a little different from the rest of the racers not just because he was several decades older than most of them, um, but he wasn't wearing any Reebok or Nike running shoes. Um, our dude had on rubber boots, okay? Rubber boots. If you think about it, um, cow hands, you know, um, you probably think of boots there. Uh, rubber boots would, you know, be the, the very non-stylish, very traditional, very, I can wash this off because I stepped in well stuff. You know, and so he's wearing some rubber boots because that's what he always did. So everybody kind of laughed at him. The race got started. Cliff started running. The other odd thing about Cliff is that his running gait was not natural. It wasn't fluid. It wasn't arms pointing forward, um, you know, muscles rippling the whole thing. He had an odd, slow, uneven gait. So it wasn't dut, 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 dut. It was more like a galloping sound and it was very slow. Pretty soon, all of the runners were out of sight of Cliff Young. But he kept running at this slow pace. And when it came time that all of the really seasoned runners rested for the night, Cliff kept going. And he ultimately passed the place where most of them were sleeping for the night. And he kept going. 
He took his small breaks as he needed, but he kept going. His unorthodox approach to this race was not cocky. It was not, I'll show you. I may be an old guy here, but I'm going to put you in my dust. It wasn't that. It was a self-contained, quiet belief that he could not only finish this race, but do well. He didn't look to his right or left. He looked straight ahead, and he kept going. Cliff Young, in his rubber boots, his uneven gait, and his 61 years young age, won the race that year by 10 hours over his nearest competitor. He won because he believed he could. And his belief was not anchored in flashy neon lights or um, high power sponsors who supported his training along the way. It was an inner conviction that that finish line was within reach. And he persisted and he won. That is a cool story of belief. And today is all about belief. Today's message I want to show you in the scripture and in some reflection on your own life and in Cliff's life here about what belief is and why it is important. And there are three instances of really incredible belief in the scripture passage that I read. The first is obvious in that at the beginning of that passage, Jairus, the synagogue leader, came with immense belief, and his belief was that Jesus could heal his daughter. So get the context here of this. We do not ever know what was wrong with the daughter. Um, certainly life expectancy during this time was not like it was during ours, medical care, none of that was what we would identify with. And yet he is a synagogue leader, so whatever the highest available treatments and services and doctor's visits would be, he would have those. Um, so whatever was wrong with his 12-year-old daughter, whatever he had tried had not worked. So he, in his leadership role, still loved his daughter so much. So much that when he heard that Jesus was nearby, he decided to go and try to talk to him. And the courage that that would have taken for him to leave the bedside of his dying daughter had to be immense. Not so much that he would have felt um, completely intimidated by Jesus, though certainly in his belief he would know um, that this is a man of great power, a man of God. But imagine the courage to walk away from the bedside of somebody you love and know that you may, you may be gone when she dies. He had the courage to do that because his belief was big enough that Jesus could heal her. So he fought through those crowds, and there were many people. That is repeated multiple times in this verse. And he found Jesus, and he fell at his feet, and he pleaded, not, I think you can heal her. I want you to heal her. It is, come, put your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. It was unconditional belief. It was absolute conviction that I believe this so much that I am going to leave the bedside of my dying daughter, fight through the crowds, 
fall at the feet of Jesus and ask him to come. Not maybe, but definitely. Pure, holy, beautiful belief. The second illustration of belief comes with the woman. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. So again, we're in a time period here that this, where the story is where medical availability would not be easily had. And whereas Jairus would have had access to the best of whatever was there, we have to assume that this woman who had female problems enough that she had continuous bleeding for 12 years, she would have had far fewer resources. Partly, we don't get any statement about her being a leader or being wealthy or anything. The only comment about her history here is that she had seen various doctors and she had spent all she had and she was declining. So things are not great for her and they haven't been great for her for a long time. The other part of this is she would have no place to go, you know, like no home, no private area. If she was going to interact with Jesus, it had to be in the crowd. And so her belief that her only hope was Jesus propelled her to confront the situation anyway. So she fought through the crowd. We can only imagine, again, lots of people everywhere. And of course, by this time, Jesus is on his way toward the house of Jairus. Um, so he's not even just standing still, he's moving forward. So she is seeking to be in the presence of somebody who is moving and who is completely bombarded on every side by people. But her belief is so big that it pushes her through that crowd anyway. And I love the fact that she doesn't say or think to herself, if I could talk to Jesus, I'll ask him to heal me. Or if I could have a moment with him, I'll tell him my problems and, and I'll see what he can do. No, nope, she has no aspiration of talking to him. Do you, did you hear that? She wants exclusively to touch his cloak, the robe that he is wearing. And she believes if I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Not might be healed, not may be healed, but will be healed. What an incredible belief that is. As she pushes through, we don't even hear desperation from her. This is my last chance. If this doesn't happen, I don't know what's going to go on with me, blah, blah, blah. Nope. She reaches through the crowd behind Jesus, and she touches his cloak. That's all she asked, and she does it. And in that moment when she touches his cloak, she is instantly healed. Jesus is not even looking at her. He is pressing forward toward the house of Jairus to the little girl. And this woman touches the cloak. And Jesus knows right away that something happened. He feels that the power, as it says, went from him. That doesn't mean that he has no power, but that it did something, that the power of, of, of God through the Holy Spirit here came through him to someone. So he's looking around, like, who touched me? And it was like, yeah, like 40 people probably touched you in the last minute. You know, everybody's around you. He's like, no, who touched me? Who did this? 
And so it is then her turn to come forward and fall at his feet, telling him what she did, what happened. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't say, you know, I would have had time if you just asked. Um, Nothing like that. He says, your faith has made you well. Go and be freed from your suffering. So he recognizes in her the belief that propelled her forward. That belief of just touching this garment that belongs to this wonderful, incredible prophet, this Christ, that would heal me. That's what she believed. The third illustration of belief comes when they get to the house of Jairus. So imagine again, still crowds, but this time the crowds around the house, inside and spilling outside, are crying. They are weeping, they are wailing, they are in agony because the daughter has died. Any death would be publicly mourned. The death of the daughter of a synagogue leader, a child, would be key to incredible displays of mourning and grief. And that's what Jesus and his disciples walk into. And Jesus says, why are you crying? She is not dead, she's asleep. And they, they laugh at him. They, they scorn him. And even though he is our savior, he is he's used to being mocked and scorned. But he, he puts them out. I love, I love that term in this translation. He puts them out. I'm like, how'd you do that? You know, how'd you clear that room? Was it gentle? Did you yell at them? What did you do to clear everybody out? We'll never know. But he clears them out. And he goes into the room where the daughter had been um, suffering and where she now lay dead. And he brings with him only his three disciples and the mother and the father. Where is the belief in this? It's with that walk that Jairus takes into that room. So you've got to kind of contextualize this, if you, if you would. So Jairus believed enough to go get Jesus, but then he is told by his people that his daughter is dead, that it's too late. And when he comes home, all of his friends and family, they're all mourning. And they laugh at Jesus for saying that she is asleep. So every indicator, every indicator to Jairus is, it's over, forget it. All indicators would say, put that belief aside, you were wrong, or your timing was off, it's over. So when Jairus stands outside the door, beyond which is the body of his 12-year-old daughter, he has to make a choice. He could just say to Jesus, I, I am sorry for taking your time, it's too late, thanks anyway, or some version thereof. He could say, no, I can't go in that room, um, Reverend Stephen Thomason actually points out when writing about this passage that the traditions of the time were that a body, a dead body that wasn't tended to, prayed over, you know, uh, anointed with oils and all of that was actually unclean. So the daughter who had just died, um, the body was, was not clean. And so going in there, potentially touching her, um, that was actually not okay. That, that was not seen as possible and acceptable. So Jairus says all of this, he's standing in front of that door, and yet he goes in. 
he would open that door and walk in with Jesus and his disciples. What an act of faith, simply opening that door. Because he was saying, I am ignoring all of these worldly signs that my daughter is dead and there is no hope, and I am still choosing to believe. In spite of all indicators, I believe. And then, of course, Jesus goes to her. She stands. She walks around. They are amazed. And all of you who like food, did you notice the end of that passage is give her something to eat, so we shall eat well. And she ate well, and she is alive. So what is belief? What's it look like? The English teacher says it's an abstract noun. Um, Abstract nouns mean they are not accessible by the five senses. So you can't pick up belief. You can't chew on it. You can't throw it at your neighbor. You can't put it in your pocket. You can't smell it. It's conceptual. It is an idea, a feeling, um, a concept that means something, but it's not accessible. So it itself requires belief. So belief requires belief. So what, what are the characteristics of belief? If, we can't, if I can't hold it up for you to see, how do we recognize it? I have three distinct descriptors of what it looks like when people believe. See if you recognize these in, in your life at different times when you have been challenged to believe in something. Characteristic number one, those who believe are goal-driven. They are goal-driven. They have a finishing image in mind. They have a goal. So in today's society, we're all about setting long-term goals, short-term goals. Um, In the classroom, we have um, objectives that we have to show on the board. Um, In various workplaces, you have calendars where this project is due then. We need to be this far at this point. Um, I-65 just closed down in Indianapolis. Um, their end goal is 35 days from now when, when it will be completely done. So we understand goals. And those who believe are goal-driven because they, they exist in a world where they are looking forward toward the finishing of a thing. Um, they have something to strive for. What they choose to pull into their lives day to day is all focused on that finishing goal, that final image. And they put themselves in line with that image and what they do and what they choose not to do all feeds into that final goal. We definitely saw that in the passage when Jairus came to find Jesus in the first place. He had a goal. It didn't matter how many people were there, how crowded and busy it was, how many folks Jesus was already dealing with. Jairus had a goal, and that was to say, my daughter is dying. Come and make her live. So those who believe are goal-driven. Second characteristic, those who believe embrace the impossible. They embrace the impossible. So the word possible, of course, means within reach, impossible. By putting that that, um, prefix on it, that makes it things that are out of reach. Those who believe embrace the impossible. They don't acknowledge the impossible. They don't salute the impossible. They embrace it, embraces the, the hug, the pulling it in, making it part of their lives. 
So those who have belief know, certainly, that there are limitations in life, daily life, personal life, career life, all of that, and yet they have a conviction that even if they can't fully imagine how to get from point A to point B, they believe it can be done, even if it seems impossible. The woman in the text who had been bleeding for 12 years is the illustrator of this particular belief characteristic. You know, she had all these medical treatments, all of these doctors, 12 years of suffering with something that would have also had her isolated from the community around her. She would have been considered unclean. So emotionally, she would have suffered as well. And yet, she embraced the impossible. I mean, think about it. Think about her, that she somehow knew in the deep convictions of her belief that touching his cloak would heal her. Again, not might or may, but would. That was her conviction. How could touching fabric heal someone? She knew it would, and it did. And please understand, it wasn't some magic trick. It wasn't like, oh, this, um, you know, this, this cloak that he had had you know, little auras of, of bright light shining out from it, you know, and she knew it was um, angelically and heavenly able to do anything. Um, and, oh, shoot, if she had only wished for a million dollars at the same time, she would have been healed and rich. It wasn't like that. It was that her belief was that God's will was, her, was for her to be whole and healed. And she matched that belief by embrace, embracing the impossible, and she was healed. The third and final belief characteristic is that those who believe persevere. Persevere. They keep at it. They are not one and done. Oh, I tried this. Never mind. I'm going to go this direction. They are not the little ping-pong ball that bounces against that rubber barrier and goes over here and everywhere. No, they're going to persevere through obstacles, through barricades, through valleys, through dark times, through shadows, through doubts, through people thinking that they are crazy and off the rails and totally pointless in their belief. They persevere. In the education world these days, Persevere is not so much the word used, but a, an absolute synonym to that is resilience and grit. Those are big catchwords in the professional world, even beyond education right now. Resilience, that you can go through tough times and still be okay and focus forward. Grit, that you have that central core that's going to keep you going. Even at Harrison this year, our school goal was to grow our own grit so we each secretly chose one other teacher in the building to be our grit buddy. Um, and during the year, we were to come up with ways to support our chosen person and help foster their grit. This was words of encouragement in notes. This was little gifts. This was, if you chose to reveal yourself, emails, hugs, high fives. And it was a really cool experiment to see if, by building community, we could grow grit. Um, and it was a blessed experience for me with my grit buddy. But grit, resilience, perseverance, it's keeping going. And I think that Jairus at the end there is the perfect illustration of what perseverance in belief looks like. 
Because again, he had been walking with Jesus toward the home and knowing that his people told him the daughter was already gone. We haven't even talked about his grief. Can you imagine? He wasn't, I can't, I cannot imagine that he was walking along, you know, smiling and hey, whatever happened, my daughter's okay. I'm, I'm with Jesus. I'm, I'm cool. I'm calm. There had to be tears. There had to be heartbreak. And honestly, there had to be doubt. Like, what if I'd come sooner? What if that lady hadn't touched his cloak? You know, what if, what if? There had to be doubt. But he perseveres anyway against the advice of every worldly sign telling him, turn back, don't bother going into that room because all you're going to find is the body of your daughter. He goes in, and she is restored to life. How do you execute your life with those three characteristics of belief? Can you orient yourself to be more goal-driven, to embrace the impossible, and to persevere? Can you change your mindset so that you do not get sunk into moving through life without a purpose, being battered by the changing emotions when disappointment and pain and loss and conflict come and beat you off of your path? Can you believe in things that to everyone else seem impossible. Years ago, when I was a student at Trinity Christian College, one of my roommates, Teresa, was a blessing to me many times. That was during the time when I was losing even more vision, just a few years away from where it would finish declining. And Teresa, in her excitement, enthusiasm, abundance of faith, and commitment to becoming a nurse, was often a prayer partner, and a daily encouragement. And today, Teresa is here with her daughter, Jory, who will, in a few minutes, sing a song for you. And I think back to that time when I was losing vision and had all kinds of doubts. I didn't do all that well with being goal-driven, with embracing the impossible, and with persevering. But God met me there, and God filled that gap by providing people like Teresa and others as I kept moving forward. And in my life, there have been times where that whole belief thing is so easy. But those times are few, and we fight forward anyway. We need to, because that is God's will for us. And what about the whole healing thing? As I stand here, not with restored vision. As you sit there, not with healed backache or not with the cancer going away from someone you love or not with conflict leaving your life so that everything is easy and pristine. What about healing? We all know that healing can be physical. But when we choose to believe, the healing that passes all of our understanding is that our hearts are in tune, in rhythm, with God's will for us. And that healing inside can be just as miraculous 
as a woman who is healed from her bleeding and a little girl who stands. To conclude, let's hold these truths about belief. God has a plan for all of us. He is not up there in some distant corner of heaven playing Sudoku, okay? He is fully aware of what we are doing, where we are, when we are drifting, and when we are walking in harmony with him. He has a plan. That plan may include physical healing. It may include heart healing. It may include becoming famous. It may include never leaving the town where you were born. But he has a plan. And through that plan, we have a destiny to reflect his light and to grow closer to him. God is always present, always present, when we believe and when we don't believe. He is always there. Our belief does not affect his presence. It's totally separate. Next week, the second half of this mini-series of sermons, we'll talk about what unbelief does and why it's important but he is present always. So when we are feeling our lowest, he is still there. Even if our perceptions don't tell us that, the truth is one that we can believe. He is present always. All things are possible. All things are possible. God's plan for us is bigger than we can conceive of. We are so limited it would be like asking a five-year-old to come up with the design, the intricacies of world peace. That is how completely immature and limited our view is of what possibility is in the eyes of God. We can't trust in ourselves because we have that limited and simple view that is so excluding what is possible. So if we trust in God and we believe, we can be there with him in that destiny that he has for us. And lastly, God joins us in communion when we believe. So his vision for us is always present. And when we believe, it is like we are coming up beside him and looking in the same direction. The image that came to my mind was a long time ago when I was in high school, we went to Colorado. My parents um, took us on many trips when they knew that my vision would be uh, declining. They wanted me to see as many things as I could while I still could. And we went to Pikes Peak. Say yes if you've been to Pikes Peak. Yeah, it's high. That sucker is high, okay? So as we're going up Pikes Peak, you know, all of these switchbacks, and remember it changes from pavement to... Um, dirt or gravel at some point when you're getting really near the top. Well, I remember that so much. My brother and I were sitting in the back seat. My dad is driving. My mom is screaming, um, Bill! Bill! Okay, um, the whole time. She firm, she had huge belief, okay? But that belief was that we were going to fall off the mountain, okay? So, but I mean, it was huge. It was huge. All right, so we got to the top, and um, you know, limited vision, we're kind of above the clouds, my mom's hyperventilating. So when I got out of the car, I didn't really want to move. You know, it's like, what if I'm standing at the very edge and no one's telling me that, you know? Don't tell the blind girl, she's right by the edge of the cliff, you know, don't whatever. And I don't think he will remember it. 
but my dad took me by the hand and we walked a little ways and it was sloping gently downward, but he stopped and he stood there holding my hand and looked out and he described what he could see. So when I was preparing this message, I had that image because God has a plan. And what belief does for us is aim us in that same direction as his plan. Picture God looking out over this mountain range and picture yourself, small, tentative, but holding God's hand, finally facing the same direction and God saying to you, look, that's what I have for you. Look there. And you, in your smaller, lower position, can't see it all. You know, your, your view is not the same as this mighty, immense God beside you. But you're looking, and you're straining. And because you love God, and you trust God, you believe that his will for you is right there. Right there, if you just believe. Cliff Young believed. He finished the race with an awkward gait, not in tandem with anyone else. He finished alone. He finished without having set any single stretch records because he went slowly. But he had a goal in mind. He believed in the impossible, that he could finish and win this race. And he persevered. And that's belief. Let us pray.